glad you're joining us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. I'm host Carrie Freeman coming to you from Atlanta in June of 2022. Today, we're going to be talking about sustainable land use and the large proportion of land that is allocated to agriculture, in particular grazing of farmed animals and how that impacts wildlife and how we can move towards more sustainable agriculture that allows for less grazing and less feed crops for farmed animals and more rewilding of spaces while we work to increase food production to nutritiously feed a growing human population. To tell us about that is Dr. Jennifer Molidor, Senior Food Campaigner at the Center for Biological Diversity. The Center for Biological Diversity is a wildlife conservation nonprofit that protects species and habitats. They believe that the welfare of human beings is deeply linked to nature, to the existence in our world of a vast diversity of wild animals and plants. They want those who come after us to inherit a world where, quote, the wild is still alive. Their main website is biologicaldiversity.org. We'll be talking today about one of their new food websites at grazingfacts.com. Our guest tonight is a senior food campaigner at the center, Dr. Jennifer Molidor. She helps lead the center's sustainable food initiatives, including the Take Extinction Off Your Plate campaign. She drives the Population and Sustainability Program's Earth-Friendly Diet Initiatives related to industrial animal agriculture, overpopulation, and overconsumption, and the impact of our food systems on wildlife and the planet. Previously, Dr. Molidor served as a staff writer for the Animal Legal Defense Fund, working on a number of food, wildlife, and environmental campaigns. She holds a PhD from the University of Notre Dame and taught for many years as a professor at Kansas State University and San Francisco State University. Welcome, Dr. Molidor. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, well, as part of your updated website for your Take Extinction Off Your Plate campaigns, you created a new grazingfacts.com website. What were you trying to accomplish with the grazingfacts.com website? Uh, so we put a lot of work into this. And the reason we did is there's a lot of interest right now for a variety of reasons in grass-fed beef and regenerative grazing. It's these sort of alternatives to factory farm models of intensive food production. But there's decades of research on the impact of grazing and the limitations even of these alternative models, um, which really just sort of other names for rotational grazing. And moving cows around is not really a climate solution, just like driving a hybrid Humvee isn't a climate solution either. So we really wanted to counter some of the mythology, some of the overstatements with, with facts and data from the research that has been done for decades. And we also wanted to add a little to the conversation, which often focuses just on climate and emissions. We wanted to talk about biodiversity and nature and how these food production systems, grazing can affect wildlife. So we're facing the sixth mass extinction crisis. Um, there are climate consequences to land conversion, of course, but there's also an extinction crisis, a crisis of biodiversity. There's a million species at risk of extinction. Much of this is related to agriculture and how we produce food. And a lot of it comes from the impacts of grazing, especially cattle grazing. So this in turn impacts our ability to grow food for ourselves, but also the ecosystem we rely on, the clean air and water, and also just the health of natural places in the wild and, and their ability to thrive on their own. 
Yeah, and I, I feel like there's not enough uh, environmental or conservation organizations talking about um, the fact that our food is a main driver of um, problems with conservation. So I, that's one of the reasons I like to have the Center for Biological Diversity on the show because you do focus a lot on, um, you know, on wild animals and the connection with food. And I'm particularly interested in, in the grazingfacts.com website. There's a, there's a section land use. And I was particularly struck by all the statistics and charts that you share about how inefficient it is to dedicate so much land globally and nationally to grazing cattle and raising feed crops to feed the cattle to fatten them up before slaughter. Um, based on how little human food is created by this massive use of lands. Can, can you tell us about that kind of disjointed uh, land use issue? So beef cattle use about 60% of the world's agricultural land, but they bring back only about 2% of global calories, 5% of global protein. So compared to like common plant proteins like beans or lentils or peas, um, it takes about 20 times more land to produce beef and it produces 20 times more greenhouse gas emissions as well per gram of edible protein. And deforestation is the second leading cause of climate change after burning fossil fuels. And it accounts for about 20% of all greenhouse gas emissions. It's a huge deal. And a lot of this comes from clearing land for cattle grazing or clearing land for feed crops. You know, all cows graze. I think one of the things we're trying to counter um, is a mis common misunderstanding. You know, um, the idea is that all cows are grass fed in yeah. the sense, right? The grazing only systems, the cows are gonna graze for longer amounts of time. And so this is gonna mean more impact on the environment. And you're, there's a trade-off between one system is gonna contribute more carbon emissions, one system contributes more methane emissions. And in terms of land use, it's just, it's an issue of can we do it, much less should we do it and what are the impacts of doing it? So for example, you know, raising a cow takes an enormous amount of water, enormous amount of land, produces enormous amount of manure, and then there's slaughter pollution, and so on. And a Harvard study found that even in, in the United States, even if we switched to an all grazing system, in the best scenario, we could only produce 27% of the beef we currently consume. So this is because Americans eat four times the global average. Right. And the USDA says we eat too much for our health, the environment saying we eat too much for sustainability, and yet we continue to do it. In terms of land, we just can't do it. And a lot of the arguments that have been made have been sort of, oh, well, we'll just convert conservation land. But people are not understanding that these grasslands, for example, conservation land, land set aside, we need more of this. Grasslands are a huge source of carbon sequestration or pulling carbon down. And another recent study found that managed grasslands and otherwise even best scenario um, livestock on these grasslands, they, contrary to popular myth, they cancel the cooling effect of grasslands left alone or sparsely grazed by wildlife. And in other words, leaving it alone is better than cattle grazing it. And the idea that people would come in as, from the industry and say, oh, this is a climate solution, actually. We need the cows to kind of turn up the soil, sequester the carbon, and that just doesn't turn out to be the case by and large. So that's an issue with land. And then another one that kind of 
gets my hackles up in terms of carbon sinks and carbon sequestration, um, habitat loss and impacts on wildlife from grazing, not to mention direct killing, of course, is this idea of marginal land, right? So marginal land is a concept that is economic. We look at a piece of land and we say, oh, this is um, an arid area, it's dry, it's a desert, so it's not gonna produce a certain crop, therefore it's economically insignificant. And we can pave it or do whatever we wanna do, put a cow on it, so forth. But this land, this is not an environmental term, this land may be a biodiversity hotspot, they have enormous important- Animals are living there already. Right, right. There's, there's other creatures there, like not everything exists for humans. And thinking of land as, as an infinite resource to exploit is really the wrong way. This is, this is what happened with fossil fuels, but it's also what's happening with grazing too, right? That we can just continue to use land this way, that it's, we can continue to expand the population, continue to eat this way, continue to live this way, and it just doesn't work. Right. The math really doesn't work out because also I appreciated a map that you have on the grazingfacts.com website that uh, it's a map of the U.S. land and it shows how all the land is allocated if you consolidated everything together into a category and clumped it all together. So from land used for timber or to grow Christmas trees or biodiesel or corn syrup or land dedicated to housing and parks. And it shows that the biggest proportion of U.S. land goes to grazing cows and sheep. And then another big proportion is land used for growing the crops that feed or fatten up those um, grazed animals or farmed animals. And even that, those crops that the land we go uh, use to feed um, livestock, quote unquote, that's bigger than the land used to grow the food we humans eat. You know, can you elaborate on, on that? Yeah, there's a series of maps there. And what it's really, the story is really trying to tell is that you know, cropland alone takes a fifth of the lower 48 states, but the vast majority of the West and beyond is pastured rangeland. Public lands um, make up the majority of the 11 Western states, for example, and cows are everywhere. And that's bad enough considering the environmental damage that cows have, including, as I mentioned, direct killing, right? Like, so if a producer feels that their, their cattle is a threat from native wildlife in that area, then they will be shot by government and public agencies. Yeah, which they are by the millions. Right, millions every year from wildlife services from USDA and beyond. And this ranges from anything from wolves to prairie dogs to bison to elk. Um, but even if we didn't look at that environmental damage, the carbon emissions, the water emission, you know, the water uses, the water pollution and so forth, the soil damages, the harms to ecosystem, um, the fact that it just doesn't work in terms of the extreme historic drought in the West, you know, that alone, even if we put all that aside, it doesn't bring us a lot of calories. It doesn't bring us a lot of food that we eat, actually. It's an enormous um, cost to the environment very little reward. For example, public lands beef is something like two, three, four percent of all of the beef. We could do away with it and not even notice because we consume so much beef and because it produces so little in this grazing model. So I think people don't understand this when they're thinking about grass-fed beef. That sounds better. You know, it, it could be arguably better for the cow to be out in the pasture rather than in the feedlot. But all of these things, it's just mind blowing how much land we are destroying for our food system and particularly for our beef consumption and dairy, by the way, right. um, without, you know, the return. And it, it's just they don't cows don't belong in the West. 
full stop. It just doesn't make sense. And as climate ravages the West more and more, you know, the Colorado River is currently suffering. The California State Water Board has allocated 0% water for agriculture. We are in crisis. We are in a water crisis. We're in a climate crisis. We are in a biodiversity crisis. And that's not alarmist. It is the fact. And people will notice this when we are forced to not be able to have these food systems producing food the way that we're used to. And so I think we need to reconsider land use among many other things. Right. And it's, and also like cows will die by the thousands because of the heat that they're out also in the heat, which has just happened. Um, and that's another aspect of, of climate change or just right. they're in an area where they just really can't, it's, it's um, they, they can't get the relief that they need. It's um, horrific. Yeah, exactly. And then, oh, well, just to repeat what you had said from the beginning about the lack of productivity on, you know, like we're having, we're dedicating the most of our agricultural land to grazing cows primarily, but then they it equates to like, did you say 2% of the nutrient, cal- the food calories or something? Public, I think public lands beef produces, it's it contested, but it's between two to 4% of all the beef production in the United States. A lot of the grass-fed beef that is consumed in the United States is imported as well. Like it's just cows doing enormous damage all across the West with very little return. Right. And so there's also charts on there that talk about um, a better, more efficient use of land and what kind of diet we could eat that would utilize the land most efficiency. So efficiently, what is the more sustainable diet or food choice that allows for the most efficient use of land for nutrition gained as we need to be able to feed a growing human population without further decimating the remaining forests? And oceans, yes. So uh, according to Oxford researchers, a global shift to plant-based diets, just even towards plant-based diets, could free up 75% of agricultural land. That's how wasteful the system is in terms of cattle. It is just an inefficient way of producing food. So other farming systems are less destructive to wildlife, more likely to promote biodiversity, keep intact ecosystems, rewilding, restoring, that kind of thing. Systems that don't produce manure or slaughter, at the scale that we currently have, um, environmental pollutants that are often overlooked are gonna be better for nature. But yeah, towards a plant-based diet, is gonna free up an enormous amount of land. And obviously, you know, it's common sense. Growing food for humans directly is gonna make more efficient use of calories and proteins and so forth, and more efficient use of the environment. So there will need to be intensive, intensively farmed areas um, of plants and legumes and so forth but directly towards humans and intensively farming animals and livestock and also putting them out in pasture, neither of these systems tends to uh, be worth it in the long run. And we simply can't do it. Right. Especially as the human population grows and we need to eat more, people cannot continue to eat this much meat. We don't have the amount of land it requires. And then it's also causing climate change and all these different things. But okay. So you talked about how many millions of acres of land's could is you know currently being misused as farmed animal grazing land or or to raise um, farmed animal feed crops. How could that land be reallocated to help foster wildlife and biodiversity? Well, um, experts are, are saying you know as you mentioned, when global population increases to meet our climate targets, we're going to have to produce fifty percent more food by twenty fifty on the same amount of land and 50% reduce percent more food. Right, on the same amount of land 
and reduce emissions from agriculture by two thirds. So we're gonna to need to produce a lot more food on the same amount of land or less amount of land because of climate impacts, but also draw down um, emissions while also doing that. So putting animals out there that only produce a little amount of food with enormous amount of emissions, requiring enormous amount of water, you know, I, there's ways to look at this and either we choose to do this change or we're gonna be forced to by climate um, as well. So as I mentioned, you know, shifting towards um, plant-based diets, setting aside land for conservation and restoration and rewilding is going to be, it's not only moral and ethical, yeah. it's going to be part of our survival as well as theirs to have a healthy ecosystem. I think a lot of times people are disconnected, not only from their food system, you know, just going to a grocery store, if they even have that access, but they're also disconnected from nature and what nature is and what nature means and, and what wilderness means and so forth. And so this becomes less of a value to them. They're thinking about how are you going to pay bills, you know, which is also a struggle right now. How am I going to survive? I'm going to protect my children and so forth. And so this needs to be made easier for people. Access to healthy, sustainable food needs to be increased. Um, we need to be smarter about protecting areas for wildlife and nature um, in order to have clean air and, and, and water. And we're going to need the government to step in and help make these things more possible. Right. That, that's going to be my next question. But if you're just joining us on Radio Free Georgia, this is In Tune to Nature. And I'm host Carrie Freeman talking about sustainable land use for growing food with our guest, Dr. Jennifer Molidor, senior food campaigner at the Center for Biological Diversity. The website we're discussing is grazingfacts.com. Uh, Dr. Molitor, what can governments do to help foster this transition to sustainable land use and an earth-friendly food system or like us eating uh, more plant-based and yeah. less um, kind of animal-based foods and, and grazing intensive foods? Well, just shifting to sustainable food production in, in itself overall, right? So I believe that the answer is not going to be only a top-down solution. We're going to also have to have grassroots advocacy. But in terms of what the government can do, policy is going to be an enormous factor in moving forward on this. So at the federal level, for example, there's dietary guidelines for Americans that the USDA and HSS put out um, that recommend what we should eat for our health and for other issues, but we have long fought to get them to talk about sustainability, to get them to say like, this is gonna be a sustainable diet. They won't do it. And we recently submitted comments along with 40 other organizations calling on them to connect, you know, dietary guidelines with sustainable diets that are good for public health, food security, national security, you know, these issues to uh, sustainable food itself is a national security issue. Anyway, yeah, pandemic public, prevention, as you mentioned, public right. health, like, you know, it's, right. it's all interconnected. It yeah. absolutely is. And we need the USDA to step up and it's kind of being very wishy-washy. And so it comes out every five years. So 2025 is the next version. And so we'll be working behind the scenes, pushing the USDA in the right direction. Um, they're resisting, but we're working on it. Um, but, you know, at the federal level, that's very broad. Advocacy do it, um, groups are doing that, but what can you do? Like people, you know, at the local level, even city and state regional level, governments can actually do things. Um, they, they need some more education though. And that's one of the things we're also working on campaigns for education. So it's an urban area might think my food print, what does that have to do with anything? We're an urban area, we're not an ag center. 
our food emissions targets are, are not important. So we need to talk and people can do this by doing city council, you know, talking to their mayor, outreach like this, that the food that is procured or purchased by the city is what is going to be grown in the rural areas. Yes. It's a if we're responsible relationship. for that, even if it's not like I live in Atlanta, even though, yeah, it's not, we're not growing that, that beef right here in Atlanta, but if you're paying for it and you're buying it for all the restaurants and the universities and schools and everything, you're, you're endorsing that mystery right. land. And not only endorsing, but you're drawing on it. So for example, the Colorado river is running dry and this is in part from Austin, Los Angeles, Seattle, you know, like all of these different places that are relying on the feed crops that are irrigated by the water in the river in the West that is very far away. And they don't understand that what they're buying, what they're serving in dining halls and prisons and hospitals and senior centers and schools, you know, like those are 7 billion meals are served um, in schools. Like these menus really matter. And so you can yeah. set emissions and other reductions targets by having a food action plan into your climate action plan and so forth. So what is served there can be very influential and that increases access to healthy food by and large because these issues are often interconnected. They can set um, binding requirements instead of voluntary incentives. You can focus on supporting BIPOC food producers, um, financially marginalized historically food producers support community gardens and networks like this to increase access and resiliency and so forth. So there's a lot of different things you can do at the micro level from your neighborhood all the way up to the federal level that creates policies that support shifts towards sustainability and, and better diets for everyone. Right. We can't just keep having the, the plate look the same as it's looked for the last couple of decades and think that not going to be a problem. Like, and right. And I do agree that sometimes it just can't be voluntary. We have to have the government say, this is the way we're moving for environmental sustainability and public health reasons. And so this is, you know, that we're going to um, enjoy healthy foods, but maybe we're, we've replaced some of the animal products with plant-based versions um, and it can be better for your health. And, you know, it's much less taxing on our, our ecosystems. Um, well, Dr. Molidor, just a last question real quick. For listeners who are interested in supporting sustainable agriculture and wildlife conservation, what do you suggest they can do as consumers and as citizens? Well, you can arm yourself with resources. You can attend city planning meetings, you know. But, you know, if people are busy, if you don't have time for that, um, or there's online actions. But if you don't have time for that, you can ask your, your work or your school board, your city council to prioritize plant-based menus. Um, yeah. even organizationally that can help as well um, to, to talk about purchasing more to help us get the educational message out to provide funding because as you're saying like it, um, we need the government to step in but it's not just that we need them to reduce choice or anything like that but to increase access because a lot of people want yeah. to choose sustainable menus and they're not available so by encouraging menus to shift this way we can uh, it's a justice issue yeah, as well food will be produced. Yeah. Okay. Like it won't be so hard to do the right thing because that food, the prices will go right. down for that food. It'll become more accessible. All the organic plant-based alternatives to, um, you know, animal-based foods. 
Yeah, I think people don't understand necessarily how subsidized the meat and dairy industries are by the taxpayers. They would not survive without us basically supporting them. And historically, as you mentioned, that we can't keep eating the way we have for decades. But we didn't used to eat this way. Right. It's via the factory farm and fast food models that have increased this. And, and one of these is that the subsidies began for corn production, which increased cow production and so forth. And so it is not normal to be eating this way and we can't keep doing it. We need to go back to and forward as well, something that is sustainable and makes sense for all of us and increases our access to healthy food and makes it easy for us to have healthy diets that are good for the planet. Exactly. Well, that's the end of our show, but I want to thank you, Dr. Jennifer Molidor, for being with us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. And thanks for the work you do on the Take Extinction Off Your Plate campaign to support wildlife and sustainable food systems. Thank you so much for having me. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to In Tune to Nature, broadcasting every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. online at wrfg.org and on Atlanta radio station 89.3 FM. We post action items, news, and podcasts on the show's website, facebook.com slash Nature. Views and opinions expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect those of WRFG, its board, staff, or volunteers. I'm one of those volunteers. I'm host Carrie Freeman asking you to please support independent non-commercial media like Radio Free Georgia. And remember to take care of yourself and others, including other species. Thank you for listening. Cheers.